0: That's linkedin.com slash MPN. Terms and conditions apply.
1: You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy.
2: Now, here's your host, Mike Carlin.
1: Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today, I'm excited to introduce you to Allison Gilbert. Allison is an award-winning journalist and author of numerous books, including Past and Present and Parentless Parents. Her forthcoming book, Listen World, How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman, is the inspiring story of a timeless maverick capturing what it means to take a gamble on self-fulfillment and find freedom along the way. Joining me today to talk about that and so much more is Allison Gilbert. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Allison.
3: I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: I am thrilled to uncork your story. And uh, we open the bottle the way we always do, which is by asking you, Allison, where does your story begin?
3: You know, I have been a lover of writing, since I was in elementary school, grammar was like my favorite class. That is where I excelled. I remember so clearly being in grade school and my teacher holding up my you know proper commas and periods for the entire class to see. And the pride that welled within me was huge. And so I knew that writing was going to be something that I was going to explore. Um, as much as I could at that age, but I've always loved writing and reading. And uh, it's what I have done for more than 20 years. I've been a journalist working at CNN and MSNBC and in TV newsrooms. Then, of course, I've pivoted to writing more and more for print and now, of course, uh, books.
1: And here you are talking about uh, a forthcoming book. Well, tell me about the, the first book you wrote. What was that process like, kind of going from or pivoting, to use your term, From sort of journalism to to writing sort of longer form. What was that experience like for you?
3: Well, it came directly out of being nearly killed on 9 11.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, now we have to, you have to tell us that story.
3: (laughs) I am so lucky. I paused for such a great period of time because, of course, just remembering that day brings back a flood of feelings, um, terror and anger and sadness and gratitude that I lived and a complete acknowledgement that I am lucky to be here when so many people did in fact lose their loved ones. I was working at NBC News that day, was dispatched to cover what was unfolding. And by the time I got downtown, the first tower had collapsed. I ran for cover. The smoke and the, the debris uh, ran by. I hid for cover in a makeshift deli, which you know so many people had done. And then when that dust cloud dissipated, I kept going down towards the remaining tower and got way too close. If you're from New York City or have visited the um, National September 11th Memorial and Museum, you know that the corner of Weston Vesey Street, is really right there. yeah, And that's where I was when the second tower came down. And so I can go into this more if you want, but I'm sensitive that maybe your listeners don't want to hear this whole story, but I know know
1: exactly where you were standing because uh, one of my corporate clients is American Express and they are right there, right there on VZ street or across from the West side highway.
3: Yeah. So that's, where I was, and was taken by ambulance with, you know, eventually my clothes ripped off and tubes put down my throat to help me breathe and survived. And that experience you asked about my first book is completely relevant because I had a lot of trouble navigating my feelings post that experience. I had what I would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. I saw a therapist at the advice of the NBC counselors, which was the greatest advice I ever received. And the advice was at the time from the counselor to write down and purge from my system as much as I could from that experience. And I thought that if I needed that, then other journalists would need that too. And so we reached out to and got the insightful first-person commentary of what it was like to report the news that day. The book is called Covering Catastrophe. And we interviewed people like Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather, who were on the air that day. We interviewed people, um, Rahema Ellis and Ann Thompson. I mean, we went high and we went big. And to this day, it's one of the most remarkable pieces of writing about the history of news that day and how it unfolded,
1: yeah, wow. I mean, I remember just watching it unfold. I had left. I was working in Manhattan, and uh, my office was on Maiden Lane, which is uh, you know, when when i when I was told how to get there to take the the four or five to um Fulton Street and walk away from the World Trade Center. I mean, that, that those are the directions I was given
3: that was the landmark. But, that was the landmark, yeah.
1: To, and um, You know, I I had left and I was working for MasterCard in Westchester, and we could see, you know, the big plume of smoke, you know, 30 or so miles away in Westchester County. Like it was nuts, but that must have been a cathartic experience for you writing that book.
3: You know, to me, and I'm going to say something that may sound completely crass to your listeners, but perhaps might also make sense. The act of writing really is cathartic. So much so that that post-traumatic stress disorder therapist who advised me to write made a story about why it was so important to write. And she said more or less this, that when we are sick and we've eaten something that kind of turns our stomach, our body vomits to get rid of it, to purge ourselves. And that is what she wanted me to do by writing my feelings on paper to purge myself of what I was keeping inside that was making me emotionally distraught. And in so doing, and then by capturing those other comments from those other journalists in covering catastrophe, it really was cathartic. And so I have since gone on to have this remarkable relationship with the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. I've now narrated their official audio tour of the day's events that happened on 9-11. That's a huge honor to me. Just this, you know, just a few months ago, we uh, we launched a documentary, a 20-year documentary about what it was like to report the news on that day with a platform called Wondrium. And we did a companion piece about the women journalists who covered 9-11. And for that, we interviewed people like Maggie Haberman for The New York Times and Savannah Guthrie from The Today Show. And so for me, for 20 years, it has been trying to make meaning about what happened overall. And then in the most personal sense, what happened to me and really thinking I was going to die that day. And of course, being so lucky and being aware of my luck that I didn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How do you suppose that impacted like what you decided to write after that and the way your, you know, the kind of the path your career took after that?
3: It, there is a direct line. If you can believe this story. So, my mother died a few years before 9 11, and my father died that Friday. So, I was nearly killed that Tuesday, and my father died unrelated to 9 11 that Friday, just a few days later. So, within a few years, I had been caught in a terrorist attack and both of my parents had died. And so I needed to make meaning out of all of these various experiences. The first book covering catastrophe was my taste, my window into pivoting from my news career, being a producer in newsrooms that I mentioned CNN and MSNBC, and really finding a great deal of satisfaction and fulfillment from writing for print. And writing for books, a long form. You know, in TV news, you get 60 seconds, you get 90 seconds to tell a story. And there was something I found really intoxicating about having more time to think, more time to digest, more time to just really allow emotions and statements and thoughts and facts to kind of simmer and not be so quick to kind of put them in context to kind of see how that evolves. And I just found it really rewarding. And so the book cover catastrophe was my first pinky toe into writing books. And then because of the deaths of both of my parents, my first few books were really about grief and loss, because that's what I needed to write about. That's what I needed to interview people about. And so I used all those skills that I had developed over so many years, working in newsrooms and working on deadlines and interviewing people at a moment's notice to then work those same skills into writing books about grief and loss.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And the more and more I hear you talk, the more I'm reminded that writing really is a form of therapy you know and and i think that's true for for people who write nonfiction as well as for people who write fiction i mean i know i you know personally from my own experiences and from the people i interview you know it's writing is a way of kind of getting lost in another world in a world that you've got control over because we have control of so little in our, in our lives like i think we like to think we've got control over lots of things some of us crave it and some of us look for it the reality is we really don't. I mean, things can change in a moment's notice, as, as you very well know, standing on the corner of West and VC and Street. But when you're writing and you're immersed in a world, for me, it's like you're doing a little world creation. You know, you can be like the master, the master of puppets, so to speak, of, of this world you're creating and things can happen the way you want them to happen. Now, whether or not other people like it is, you know, that might be out of your hands, but I do find it therapeutic in that regard.
3: I couldn't agree more. And that's even true in some ways with nonfiction. We were talking about my new book, Listen World. And even though it's nonfiction, I still feel exactly what you've just described, which is this great playfulness that, of course, we have the facts of Elsie Robinson's life. But how do you tell that story in a way that can feel artful, you know, that can feel that you are really communing? with someone's thoughts and ideas in some cases from more than a hundred years ago. And so I felt very privileged to be in the Elsie Robinson mind space because she actually was a lot more creative than I will ever be. You know, not only was she a nonfiction writer, not only was she a newspaper columnist, but she was also a fabulous illustrator. She started her career Writing children's pages and write and drawing children's cartoons, and then that morphed into her being still to this day, one of the only columnists overall, male or female, to also draw her own editorial cartoons. It's very rare to do both. You know, normally, editorial cartoonists draw the art for other people's writing. It was very rare for a writer to also draw her own work. And so for that reason, she was a bit of a unicorn.
1: Well, speaking of Elsie Robinson, tell me, let's uh, give me the backstory on how this book came to be. What what spurred you to write it and, and why Elsie Robinson over anyone else you could you could write about?
3: Well, it's directly related to what we were talking about before, Mike. I only found out about Elsie Robinson because my mother died my brother and I were cleaning out our childhood home and I was in charge of packing up my mother's books. And I was really having a tough time. I must say, I just could not take them off the shelf and shove them into a box and tape them up. I mean, I was really looking at every page, opening them up, shaking the book up and down, seeing if anything fell from the inside, seeing what she had annotated in the margins. Was there any clues that I didn't know about my mom that would lead me to a discovery about her that now that she was gone, I just was really searching. I I was just searching for anything that would keep me connected to her. And lo and behold, about five hours in, I don't know, it was a really long time, something did in fact flutter to the floor. and what fluttered to the floor. Do you remember those Old like onion skin pieces of paper. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Oh, absolutely. Because uh, when I was a, a good Catholic schoolboy, we had Bibles and uh, the pages were printed on onion skin. So I know exactly what you're talking about.
3: So it's that, yeah. So it's that really thin paper. And so my mother had retyped a poem. And the poem was one of the most incredible pieces of writing. Tough love. No hand-holding, no back-stroking, just kind of like, be grateful you had someone worth missing. Like, it was that kind of tough love poem about grief. It was what I needed to read in that moment. It was if my mother was there telling me how to grieve about her because my mother was really a tough love kind of lady. And it was attributed to someone named Elsie Robinson. And I had no idea who Elsie Robinson was. I took the piece of paper. I went to my brother who was cleaning out the rakes and the shovels in the garage while I was upstairs having done the books. And I said, do you know who Elsie Robinson is? You know, maybe it was a friend of my mom's or maybe it was a college roommate. You know, we had no idea who she was. And since he had no clue either, it set me on this, uh, wonderful path of discovery to find out who Elsie Robinson was. And it's been a journey of such profound excitement and discovery. It's just been such a joy.
1: I mean, in kind of ways, it's like a, a gift given to you from your mother, you know, even though she had passed, it's a gift from her.
3: I have felt so close to my mom writing this book, because of course, I would imagine that if she had kept this poem and retyped it, then she somehow liked the voice that was so distinguishable as Elsie Robinson. She was a blistering writer. She was opinionated. She didn't leave anything back. And I, like I said before, she was not going to stroke your hair and make you feel better and let you you know, moan or mope or feel sorry for yourself. Elsie Robinson was much more about snap out of it, you know, from that moonstruck scene. Yeah,
1: moonstruck, yeah. And, and share to and, and Nicolas Cage.
3: Yes. I mean, like, that's really um, how I would kind of characterize Elsie Robinson's tone. And that goes to how she felt about gender inequality. She wrote a lot about men and women. And, and this is back in, you know, the 1920s. This is well before Gloria Steinem was even born. You know, this was like new stuff and really exciting. You know, the vote was still percolating. The vote was still, you know, in the ether. But these issues to be kind of brought to the surface by a mainstream Newspaper columnist who became the highest-paid writer in the entire William Randolph Hearst organization. Her platform was enormous, read by more than twenty million Americans. Do you know how many people watch the Today Show? It's not twenty million, right? (laughs) Not not anymore, Americans. (laughs) So her platform was great, and I just loved learning about her. And I so you had talked about my mom, and this is how I found out about her. And you're right, this is um, reading Elsie's work, more than 9,000 columns in her lifetime. Seeing how she drew her editorial cartoons, what issues spoke to her, has made me feel closer to my mom, because I would imagine that these were the issues. This was certainly her sensibility. So in many ways, the lessons that Elsie shared with her readers, I interpreted them as the lessons that maybe my mom never got to teach me in some ways.
1: Yeah. You know, something I'm curious about, I mean, you're you're a journalist, you had a long career in journalism. Can I assume that you went to journalism school? No, I did not. You did not? Okay. No. Now, I wish you said yes, because here's why. (laughs) I was going to say, isn't it interesting that, you know, you who did not go to journalism school but who has worked as a journalist had never heard of Elsie Robinson this you know highest paid person in the Hearst organization with this major platform bigger than the today show why have we never heard of her
3: i have so many theories so and i talk about this and of course in the book cuz that's when you are done reading the book you're like how come we don't know about her so i spoke to some real journalism historians I spoke with some real experts in women's history. And so here are just a few thoughts in no particular order. The National Women's History Museum has some exceptional statistics. And they talk about how many women in history are taught K-12 in schools across this country. And I hope I'm remembering this correctly, and maybe you can fact check me after we're done. But if my memory serves, one quarter of all biographies, all subjects taught in US public schools, only one quarter are women. And so when you downplay the role of women in having created this country and being a part of the fabric of this country, when those stories are told less frequently, then we learn fewer histories. And so that's one reason. And I highly recommend there was this incredible panel discussion they had when they released this data, and it's on the National Women's History Museum website. I found it to be Shocking, don't you find that shocking that yeah it it the doesn't sound just so low
1: yeah to, to me, it sounds counterintuitive. I just think about all the teachers I've had, my kids have had over the years, and uh anecdotally that th- those numbers don't hold up, but you know, I haven't seen the data, so
3: yes, well, that to me was highly illuminating. Another reason why I found this to be so rele- you know just like a revelation to me. When you think about what's taught in schools, and now this also goes up into the collegiate level, there are many times we are taught through certain prisms, wars, and how we learn about war is through the economies or strategies, you know, military strategies or politics. All of those categories, just in that one example, are not where women have traditionally been allowed to bubble up to the top. And so, if you're teaching history through the lens of, let's say, war, politics, elections, then those are going to be, you're going to reinforce the fact that women aren't a part of those ways of telling our history, where women show up more readily are, of course, in culture, in art, in journalism in social activism. And so those are the less frequently played aspects of our educational system. And all of this, by the way, again, this is not me. I am not a PhD in this at all. I was so enlightened by the work of the National Women's History Museum because I too was curious, why haven't we heard of Elsie Robinson?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just think about the things that we do get taught in school and you're right. I mean, so much of it is, you know, history, but when you think of history, it's like history of Western civilization or colonization, European history. You really don't get into, you know, some of the, I, but I think it's the more interesting things to, to learn about. Um, but it's
3: changing. It's definitely changing. Yeah. And so yeah. the more we are aware of this deficit, the more we can fix it. And that's what's being done now, which is of course, really um, exciting. But the other thing that I'll say about why I think Elsie Robinson um, has been forgotten is one little interesting thing. You know, she wrote a memoir in 1934, and through a clerical error, her publisher didn't follow the right protocols, and her book was allowed to go out of print. And we tracked down through the US Copyright Office the paper trail. And we were able to find the staffer at the publishing house who made the clerical error. And some clerk at the U.S. Copyright Office said, "You know what? You are not dotting your eyes correctly. You are not dotting. You not. You not. You know, striking your Ts in the proper way. It's out." So they didn't renew the copyright, which meant that her book, of course, went out of print.
1: Wow! Look at you. This this wasn't just a. Uh you know, a biography. This was like a piece of investigative journalism on your part.
3: It was so much fun. I can't (laughs) tell you how much fun it was. I used to be an investigative reporter for a really long time and I loved it. I should say producer, but you know, for me, it feels interchangeable at this point. I was an investigative (laughs) producer for years and the digging and the research and the uncovering, I just, I loved it. I really felt that I was a pig in mud in many ways. And My co-author, Julia Shears, and I even went to California to this ghost town called Hornitos. And in Hornitos, we truly believe we have found the actual typewriter that Elsie Robinson used to teach herself how to type. And that's what actually gave birth to her career, is that in that era, between 1915 and 1918, that was when things were really underway, and handwriting was not going to cut it anymore for her to submit her stories. And so she taught herself how to type, and we found this typewriter, which I can share with you more of those details. And we have a picture of it actually in Listen World, our book, covered in inches of dust. We couldn't believe it in a locked shed that has been completely behind closed doors since the 1950s, wow. and which, of course, is when she died.
1: Very cool. You could write a book just about that typewriter. Uh, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> no, you could. I mean, I, that could be a great um, MacGuffin, I would say. In I a, mean, uh, I
3: love it. If, you know, for any of your reader, you know, for any of your listeners, you know, the writing is great fun. And the writing is, of course, what gets all the glory and the attention but it's that roll up your sleeves, those painstaking hours and days and minutes of really that grueling research where it's just, you don't know where the discoveries are going to come from. It's just, it's really invigorating. It's exciting to me. And it's where those aha moments come that make it all worth it, I think.
1: Yeah. That's uh, you know, from a researcher at heart, that sounds like the fun part to me too. How long did it take you to, uh, to write it once you start once you committed to the project, how long did it take?
3: I have three answers to your question. <laughs> so I do, I must admit, I have three answers. The short answer, which is like contract to being done. That was about two years. We asked for two years, my partner and I, cause we really knew that it was going to, it was the first biography of Elsie Robinson ever written. So we didn't have a roadmap. And so we knew it was going to take some time. So that's answer number one. Answer number two is that first conversation I ever had with my literary agent about Elsie Robinson. And I went back to my emails and I was like, when did I first mention her to my agent? And it was 11 years ago. Oh my goodness. 11 And then if you want to go back to when I found that poem after my mom died, of course, that's now going back 30 years.
1: Yeah, geez. Wow. I mean, it reminds me when I talked to Debbie Applegate about her book on Polly Adler. There are so many similarities. Number one, she was a name who was lost to history until, you know, Debbie brought her back. But number two, I mean, I think she mentioned that was a 14-year writing process for her. So these things take time. I mean, you say two years, but really, it's a lot longer than that.
3: And you mentioned Debbie Applegate, who I must just say, I'm a, the biggest fangirl there ever was of Debbie Applegate. And the fact that I'm even mentioned in the same sentence as her, the fact that she's won a Pulitzer Prize you know, for her other works. And she's just, I mean, I her work, her research, I put her on such a pedestal. And I am forever grateful for her advice and her wisdom and her friendship. If you haven't read, Madam, please do yourself a favor and go get that book.
1: Oh, no, it's a, it's a great one. I actually gave it to my dad because he loves biography and he loves that time period. He's turning 90 this year. Oh, um, and I said, I, I gave him the book and I said, you're going to learn a lot about boxing in the early chapters. You're going to learn a lot about, you know, being a Jewish immigrant and you're going to lo- learn a lot of things that you didn't know <laughs> about who some of her customers were, so. You know, is, uh, the
3: greatest. Uh, she is such a dynamic writer, Debbie Applegate, and one thing that I've always learned from listening to her talk about her work is that her goal is always to make the reader want to keep reading. Yeah. And so I just I appreciate that, right? It's a craft, it's an art form. So no matter how many facts you compile, if you can't artfully share them with the reader, you're kind of dead in the water. So I. Really think that my co-author and I, Julia Shears, I think we, I think we did it. I think we gave Elsie's story uh, justice.
1: Well, there you go. Well, we've been talking about Elsie a lot, but we need to keep uncorking your story a little bit, Allison.
3: Oh, good. Okay, so go to,
1: to do that, I've got some fun questions for us. I tend to uh-oh, learn a lot about uh-oh, people. Oh, yep, I know. Don't worry. No one, no one has uh, imploded or exploded from these questions, but I do learn a lot about people by uh, through pop culture. So I'm curious uh, to start off with, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were growing up?
3: Oh, that is just so easy. The Brady Bunch, of course. I mean, there was just not another show that I was going to stop all homework for than The Brady Bunch. So full stop.
1: What is it about The Brady Bunch? Because that show comes up so often. You know, when, when I ask authors this question, what is it about The Brady Bunch? My wife has like a PhD in Brady Bunch. You know, I wasn't as big of a fan as she was, but what is it for you? Like, well, why the Brady Bunch for you?
3: Oh my gosh. It just had everything. It had sibling rivalry. I have a brother. There's tons of sibling rivalry in my family. There's parents who were most of the time getting along, but then there was of course some tension. There was, you know, just teen angst, right? Worries about pimples, right? I mean, there's just like things that you can totally relate to voices changing. I remember my brother's voice changing. I mean, it just felt that we were members of that extended family. I just felt like there was things that were unfolding that felt very real. And of course, so not real, right? I mean, the house was always clean and immaculate and just you know, Alice running around and making everything better. I mean, who has an Alice in their life? I certainly didn't have that type of environment, but it just felt relatable.
1: I know we are you know, we have triplets at home. They're 20 now, but I remember during the course of their life, my wife would frequently say, I need an Alice. I need an Alice. Like that was like she just kept saying, I need an Alice. You want to give me something for Christmas? Give me an Alice. And I'm like, Well, I want to Sam the butcher. Yeah.
3: <laughs> you know, I have a 20 year old too. I think we should talk about our 20 year old sometime.
1: Oh, we should. Well, I've got three of them and they uh, you know, it's so interesting with kids like. I used to think like when they were younger, it's just going to get easier when they're older, right? So it's going to be easier when they can walk. It's going to be easier when they can talk. It's going to be easier when they can drive. It's going to be easier when they can work. And it just doesn't seem to ever really get easier.
3: You know, I (laughs) it's um, different,
1: but not easier.
3: You know, I would say that I um, agree in many ways. And the one story that flashes to my mind is after my grandmother returned, I think, 89, and she was still worried about my uncle. <laughs> you know, my father had died as we just talked a few days after 9 11, but my uncle, thank God, was around for many, many years after that. So my grandmother had one surviving son well into his 60s. And I remember she was nearly 89, and she was still worried about her son who was like in his 60s. So I think you're right. It's never going to end.
1: It never ends. And my mother used to walk around saying, Michael, a mother's job is to worry. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, I could not, I could not apply for that job. Like, I don't <laughs> want to worry all the time. And I don't really worry about them so much. It's just, you know, just managing logistics. We've got, you know, five drivers in the house and three cars, you know? It's funny,
3: I must say, I worry more about my grown children. So I have a 22 year old as well, who just graduated college. I worry more when they're under my roof and home than when they were in college or if they're just out of the house, not sleeping at home. Because when they're not home, I'm not responsible for knowing what time they're supposed to arrive. That's just not within my Mm -hmm. power anymore. But when they do come home and they are expected home, And then you can't, or at least I can't really fall asleep a hundred percent, even if they're 20 and 22, because you're expecting them. So under the roof to me carries a different weight and has always been that way. Even though they went when they were younger and at sleepaway camp, I felt that I had an emotional break during summer because for so often, as you just said, my job as a mother you know, has been a little bit too much to worry. And so summer camp became a time where I could actually have an emotional break because I knew it wasn't me who was ultimately responsible for their safety at the end of the day.
1: Right. Yeah. So you get something out of it and they get something out of it. So it's a win-win. Yeah, Yeah, it was a real break for me. And this story brought to you by the Brady Bunch. (laughs) How about this? Kind of going back to growing up. Uh, who are you listening to on your uh, on your Walkman or or albums or, or tapes? You know, I won't say playlists because we didn't have those, but what did yeah. you listen to growing up?
3: Well, that is such a great question. So I can answer in two seemingly completely discordant ways. Run DMC. Sure. I was a huge fan, and then Madonna. So. Both are kind of dating me at a certain time, but those, I guess, are the two that come to mind.
1: Yeah, no, uh, love Run D M C. Their album Raising Hell to me was uh, really opened my eyes to like a fusion between like rock music and hard rock music, which I love, and and sort of rap and hip hop. How they blended sort of riffs like these rock riffs, like these like heavy guitar, like King of Rock has a heavy guitar part to it. And then, you know, with the lyrics going over it, I mean, to me, I was blown away by them. And then, of course, when they collaborated with Aerosmith, like that's when they, I think, really hit mainstream. But um, yeah, I thought that was so
0: cool.
3: Completely. That was my kind of teenage years for sure.
1: Yeah. And actually, Daryl McDaniels, the DMC and run DMC, was just in my town at our library. Yeah, I know. He was promoting. I think he wrote a children's book. Oh, Uh, my goodness. So he was at our local library. And for some reason, I couldn't go to that event. But. I was trying to uncork his story, but i I couldn't I couldn't make the connection,
3: um, oh, my gosh, that would be amazing. Could you imagine? I know
1: I know I would love to. i would probably fanboy over him a little too much, though.
3: well, you're a fanboy for him. I'm a fangirl of Debbie Applegate. So we're- well, there you go?
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe like the four of us can get together and go to lunch sometime. Oh,
3: my gosh, um, I'm in. I'm totally in
1: <laughs> How about this alternative career you'd like to pursue? So you know, if you know you' you've done journalism, you've done writing, what else would you like to pursue if if you could?
3: Okay, well, I have no talent to do this, but if I had a fantasy, I would so be on Broadway, and I would have the best voice ever, and I would sing, and I would dance, and I have always wanted to be Annie.
1: Annie? Why Annie? Why Annie? Or all the classic characters you could be. You could be Cosette from, uh you no know, is it Les Mis? Why Annie?
3: Oh, because I when I grew up, I had the reddest of red hairs. It's much lighter now because of all the gray, but it was red. It was carrot top red. And I always wanted to be Annie. And that show when it first hit, you know, Broadway with Andrea McArdle, you know, well before Sarah Jessica Parker, you know, that is what I wanted to do. I just feel like being on stage and being able to belt out a song and own a crowd like that talk about storytelling that is the ultimate storytelling it's live you're communicating directly you're you're gripping the audience with your voice and the character i just um i found broadway growing up in new york in my backyard just mesmerizing we went to the theater all the time and i just um that's what i would love to do i have no talent to do it never you know but that's what i would love to do
1: you know it's interesting as as sort of writers you know you don't get immediate you know validation from your work until you know you put in i don't know anywhere between 2 and 13 or 30 years writing you know your your latest book right <laughs> you're not going to you're not going to really get feedback on it until it's released until reviewers reviews are coming in you know from the professional reviewers from you know fans readers see we really don't get that as authors it takes a long time in other words to get it whereas when you're on stage and i find this by doing stand up you know, you get immediate, you know, it's an immediate kind of reaction. You're either funny or you're not. Like people are laughing or they're not. And you know immediately, you know, okay, this joke has to be rewritten or this has to just be 86 altogether. Same thing in theater. I mean, people are either clapping after your number or they're not. You know, so I, interesting you know, distinction. I was going to
3: wait to share this story, Mike, but I don't see a better way, a better time than right now. Here's my story only for you. Okay, should I I
1: mute this? Should I mute this for the listeners? No, we will let them listen. Okay.
3: During college, I went to school in Washington, D.C. In Baltimore, there was a comedy club, don't ask me which one, and they had amateur night. My friends and I drove, I signed up, and I did a set. Uh huh. That's the whole story.
1: And how did it go?
3: It was awful. It was really intimidating. As you know, I basically had, I think a single joke that was any good. And once that was told, I was pretty much, you know, I had shot my wad. That was kind of it. And, um, I was so young back in the day that my husband, who was then my boyfriend, he wasn't even allowed in cause he was underage. So he was completely locked out of the club.
1: Wow. <laughs> so two things there. I mean, look, Open mics, amateur nights, you know, they usually give you about three minutes. And uh, if you uh, only have one joke, the other two minutes and 45 seconds, you know, feel like an eternity. <laughs> but I have to say, this is the first time the phrase shot my wand has ever been mentioned on Uncorking a Story. So <laughs> there's that. I mean, I don't think I'm going to name this episode. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> gosh. Well, have you and had Allison Gilbert, but... Have you ever had
3: an author talk about being a stand-up comic before for a single night?
1: I I have not. I have not. So that is a first.
3: See, I so have saved a story just for you.
1: We're breaking ground here. Uh, <laughs> breaking this is, news! I've got I've got the scoop. <laughs> I've got the breaking scoop. Breaking news! How about this one? Um, how do you feel when you're looking at a blank sheet of paper and you know you've got to write something? What does the blank sheet of paper do for you?
3: It's funny. The first thing I wanted to say, my knee-jerk reaction, was to say excitement, because there is a path that's up to me to create. The second part of me, of course, is terror, because there's a path that's only up to me to create. And I'll never forget a piece of advice that I remember reading from the great writer Barbara Ehrenreich. And what she has said about writing and facing the blank page, and if you feel like you've hit writer's block, which she has never believed in, what her advice is, and I have always found this to be true, there is no writer's block. What it actually is, is that you haven't done enough work. And what she meant by that is you haven't done enough research. And so if you haven't done enough research, then that means you don't know what to say because you haven't built that scaffolding. And so whenever I do feel stuck or worried by a blank page, I think of what Barbara's advice was, and I just do more
1: work. Do more work. I've also heard kind of coming to a project with a, with a good outline, uh, a nice robust outline yes. is also helpful. Yes. And interestingly, I know some people think that outlines are handcuffs, but really what I found, and because I, I'll always approach a, a new project with an outline and I'll spend, you know, a month or so just working on that. It's um, you know, you, it can be fluid, you can change, you know, you can, you know, as ideas come to you or as, as sort of events unfold in that world you're creating, you know, this world that we talked about earlier that we have control over, we, we have control over it. So we can we can pivot to use your word if we need to pivot.
3: I completely agree. I couldn't, I couldn't say it better.
1: So I've got two more for you. Number five is what lesson about publishing is, is sort of kind of going back to that first book that you wrote. What lesson about publishing do you feel like you learned the hard way?
3: That's a good question. And I'll wrap it up into only talking about the most recent book because it feels the rawest experience and the freshest. You know, writers are always told that your platform is really important. So, who will read your book when it's written? Who is underneath your kind of arms that you can kind of bring into the fray? You need to prove your platform to publishers. The second thing that publishers like to know is that the person who you're writing about, in my case, nonfiction, a biography, is someone that's going to be recognizable to readers. And that was really hard with Elsie Robinson because like we first started talking about earlier during this conversation, it had been Elsie Robinson who, even by historians that study women, historians who study American journalism, people who are completely absorbed In let's say early American history, and I'm just talking about perhaps when Elsie Robinson lived, the turn of the 20th century. If so many historians are also saying who, it stands to reason that my agent and I had a tough time initially selling this book. And so my advice would be if you are so passionate about your topic, do not give up because ultimately it just took one editor to say yes. Yeah. And I was not going to give up. And I will thank my agent till the end of time for not giving up on me. Because in those first 11 years that I was describing, When I was thinking and massaging and considering and ruminating and wondering, there were failed proposals in that time that didn't go forward, that weren't good enough, my agent said, for him to go out with to publishers. It took me a long time, and I needed my co-author's help, Julia Shears. She was invaluable. She is invaluable. The best partner. A girl could have had. We were thick as thieves writing this book. I could not have done it without her. She couldn't have done it without me. We were just a wonderful team. And so, back to your question do not give up. Many publishers said no, only one said yes. And I am forever grateful to my literary agent for being patient with me and believing that the Elsie Robinson story that the Listen World book needed to be
1: written. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just given some great words of advice to you know people looking to sort of publish something, right? So, uh, and, and I hear it all the time. And I know this you know, for myself is, you, know, you have to be patient during the process, but you, you have to just never give up. You have to keep pursuing it and you have to fight for it.
3: You know what? I'm just going to say one thing. Yeah. If you as the writer don't believe in your project and you're not willing to go to the mat for it over 11 years in my case and struggle. I was so passionate about Elsie Robinson. The more I read of her 9,000 columns, the more her advice stuck in me about feminism, about parenting, about family, about Communism, about capitalism, about capital punishment, about anti-Semitism, about freedom, about the power of nature to heal, about grief and loss, just these messages that she communicated in some cases a hundred years ago, her words spoke to me. And so because they spoke to me, and I just felt they needed to be heard and remembered. By readers today who will have never heard of her for all the reasons that we've already described. And so I felt that I had a mission to resurrect her legacy. I felt that I was on Team Elsie. I felt that she deserved to be remembered. So that was pushing me forward. And I think for a lot of writers, that inner drive is all you have, that inner passion is what you got. And your job is to sell that into your agent and into the publisher. And so I had that, and it just took me time to wrangle her story in a way that I think will actually. And please, if you're listening to this, let me know how we structured the book, by the way, Mike, is that we let her voice sing all over the pages. We let her columns speak for themselves, not by reprinting the columns in their entirety, but allowing her voice to help tell her biography. So her poems, her columns, her memoir, it's all braided throughout the entire book. So you can hear Elsie's voice for yourself. So you can feel as infatuated, hopefully with her, as we became with Elsie Robinson ourselves.
1: Well, I want to end this on... uh... Uh, some words of advice you would give to your younger self. So if you could just, you know, think of, you know, think of Allison uh, Gilbert as a, a younger Allison. What would you tell your younger self if you could Marty McFly this, right go back in time, meet your younger self, give give her some words of advice. What would you tell her?
3: Stop eating all those carbs.
1: <laughs> Did you like carbs as a as a younger <laughs> person?
3: Stop eating the cake and the potato chips.
1: Okay anything else you might tell her besides uh <laughs> giving her some dietary Is that not good rest- enough? yeah well I mean you know give her some dietary restrictions any anything else
3: <laughs> that's a good question I would say be more patient with yourself yeah mm-hmm. yeah patience has never been my virtue still so I think that I still need to hear that advice
1: yeah I think we are in general regardless of how old we're, we are probably overly hard on ourselves than we should be
3: So more patience for the potato chips. (laughs) More patience for that chocolate cake. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) There you go. Well, uh, my guest today has been Allison Gilbert, and she's been talking about uh, many things, but uh, uh, one of which is uh, Listen World, How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman. This book will be coming out in September. As we record this now, it's funny, we're recording this in in July, but uh, we will be releasing this in September. And we will be sure to put all the links for where you can buy that book in our show notes. I'd also like to put in some links of how people can connect with you, Allison. Um, so is there a website or or social media you want to throw out there?
3: Yeah, definitely. So thank you for even inviting me to mention. Uh, AllisonGilbert.com is the website. It has all my social media channels on there or a Gilbert writer is the handle pretty much everywhere. And I really, truly, I love to hear from readers. And so if there's a favorite quote that you're looking at when you're reading Listen World, if there's a favorite poem or a stanza, I would love, love, love to know what's resonating with you because I've had 11 years of pleasure reading Elsie Robinson's words and I would know what lands, I would love to know what lands well for you.
1: There you go. So that's the audience. That's an invitation. You can uh, badger uh, Allison with your feedback. <laughs> Please. Uh, <laughs> we all want validation. That's a big secret, by the way, audience. We all need some validation in our lives. So
3: especially, mm-hmm. listen. My mom died. You know, more than thirty years ago. I've been thinking about Elsie Robinson pretty much nonstop since then. So for thirty years, Elsie Robinson has been my secret. I'm so happy to share her now. And so the more I get to talk to talk about her and share her. Like, really, I'm not kidding. Please email me. I would love to hear from you.
1: There you go. Allison, this has been a very fun conversation and enlightening. Thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story.
3: Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.